I want to start off today by reading our mission, uh, and it's Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is what he said, his last words before, to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. Said, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So over the next five weeks, uh, we have some big stuff to talk about as a church. We started this church five years ago in our living room. And over the past six months or so, we have felt um, God moving us to, to narrow our focus uh, when it comes to the Great Commission and, and what it looks like to live out this command, this, these instructions that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples. What does that mean specifically for Restore Church? And we felt the Spirit kind of leading us into that direction. Uh, and if you're wondering, when, when you think of uh, the Great Commission, when he says go and make disciples, disciples means a student or a follower. So what does it look like for us to ourselves follow Jesus as students and followers and also to invite others along that discipleship journey. So thinking about that in our context, 2,000 years later, uh, it's a little different than it was for him. And we think about the, we live in a very interesting part of the world. We live in, uh, maybe you live in Silver Spring, Montgomery County, Washington, D.C., Virginia, the DMV, this place in our lives are filled with people who have known the name of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, have probably experienced a church gathering at some point, have maybe cracked open the Bible. Um, almost everybody has experienced it <clears throat> in, on some sort of level. And they've gotten a taste of it. And there's some people that have gotten a taste of it, like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, <clears throat> and they hate the taste. They spit it out with anger, kind of like when I taste olives. I hate olives. If I put an olive in my mouth, it, it's the only food I will spit out. So it would have to be an accident. And there's only 3% of our culture that feels that way. Not about olives, but about God. They, they're just angry about it. It's about 3% of our culture are, are kind of that militant atheist. But there's a large and rapidly increasing segment of our culture that when they've tasted religion or faith or God or, or the Bible or, or any other religion... Um, they haven't spit it out, but they just don't want anymore. It's kind of like when I eat flan. Have you ever had flan? It is the most bland food I have ever tasted. No offense to all you flan lovers in here, all right? We can have different tastes of food, but I had it once. That was enough. I don't ever want it again. It's something I would never think to myself, man, I could really go for some flan right now. That sentence has never entered my mind. And that's how a, a rapidly increasing part of our culture looks at faith and God and Jesus and church. It's, I've been there, I've done that. It's irrelevant. It's not something I ever think about or want or need. I, didn't, I don't hate it, just didn't like it, don't want it, don't need it. That's how people think of God. And I don't know what the stats are. I think it's around, oh, uh, some people, I mean, it, it runs the game. It's, stats are meaningless. They're it's always, there's always an angle thrown in. I've been watching a lot of The Wire lately, so I'm pretty skeptical about anything stats-related. If you've seen The Wire, you know what I'm talking about. So I've, I've watched that series kind of over and over again for the last three years. Um, but there's a word that researchers use to describe this growing segment of our culture, and they, it's called the de-churched. That's the word they're describing. So people who are spiritual, maybe interested in faith, believe that there's more than the eye can see, but when it comes to the shallow and rigid and legalistic faith of religion, 
They don't want anything to do with that. They've experienced it and like, I don't want that. But maybe they want something different. So for us, Restore Church, many of us have been there. All right, we've experienced that. Maybe we're in the thick of, uh, maybe you're experiencing that kind of a, a taste towards God or Jesus right now, just bland. Or maybe you've been there, but we all know people that are there. We all know people that are our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, people really care about that we would say, yeah, they're probably in that, that, in that crowd of, uh, that growing crowd of people who just find this stuff completely irrelevant and, and just not interested. Now, our friendship with them does not hinge on the fact of them knowing Jesus or not knowing Jesus. We, that, that's not how we roll. We, we love them because we love them. All right? There's no conditions or strings attached to our friendships with people. They're not our projects. All right? we, if you want to piss someone off, treat them like they're your project. Do that. It'll work. If, if you want to get rid of somebody in your life, that's how you do that. You don't even have to break up with them. Just uh, treat them like they're your project. So there's a group of people who are discovering, we are a group of people who are discovering a love of Jesus Christ. Not a love of religion but a love of Christ. So we're traveling this spiritual journey and we're excited about the depth and the power and the texture and the mystery of what it means to follow Jesus as Messiah. And so naturally, we desire to invite other people along this journey with us. Not that we have it all figured out, but because we've experienced a taste of something and we want more of it. Something that's much deeper and flavorful than the, than the shallow, rigid, legalistic faith we may have experienced at some point in our life. And we want others to come along the ride, come along the journey, because it's kind of like this countercultural adventure that we want people to go on with us. So specifically, when Jesus says to go and make disciples for a restored church in the context we live in and the people we know, we think it's to, it's to connect and bring and invite along the journey the de-churched crowd, which is a, you know, this rapidly growing segment of our culture. We want to invite our de-churched friends and family onto the discipleship journey with us. So we're, we're on an individual and communal mission of following Christ. And in order to pursue, in order to pursue or continue on this journey or to attract others to this journey, there's a critical component that's required. Culture formation. This is, um, uh, there's a, an author named Andy Crouch who wrote a book, a really good book called Culture Making. And this is a quote from that book. Culture is, first of all, the name for our relentless, restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. It is what human beings make of the world. It always bears the stamp of our creativity, our God-given desire to make something more than we were given. This is what it means to, this is what culture means. So as we follow Jesus as, on this discipleship journey, there should be this, uh, this atmosphere change around us. It's kind of like uh, the Charles Schultz character, Pigpen. I have kids, so I immediately thought of Pigpen. When he's walking along, what's surrounding Pigpen? This stinky dust cloud. Everywhere he goes, it's kicked up around him. So on a more positive note, as Christians who are following Jesus on this discipleship journey, wherever he goes, there should be, or wherever we go, there should be a, neat, a unique culture that kicks up around us, that surrounds us, and that and not in the pig pen way, actually attracts people. Like, ooh, what is that? There's, there's a, an atmosphere, a cultural change uh, for, of these people that are following Jesus. So it should be this cloud of like countercultural beauty surrounding. So for Restore, after much prayer and practicing this over the last five years, because we are not perfect at any of this, but we do feel like this is 
uh, an increasing cultural cloud that's kind of kicked up around us. And after a lot of discussion, we've attempted to name the specific qualities in that cloud. Now, what's the restore church culture? So this is what we came up with. There's six specific attributes of the culture of discipleship in our, in our community and individually. And the first one is inclusion. Number two is authentic community. Number three is empowerment. Number four is justice. And number five is scholarship. And number five is we, we want this community to be restorative. Hence the name Restore Church. So you want to see what we did there? All right, so this is us. Right, not the TV show, all right? I know I say those words, you're like, what? This is us? I've never even seen that show, but that is us. This is us, our culture. So over the next five weeks, we're going to consider the Christ-like qualities and implications of each part of our culture. So these go beyond, those words go beyond what we value and what we practice. The way that we think of these, it's kind of like quantum physics. Like Christ has this ability to literally rewire our DNA and our genetics and our biology. Like, he is changing us from the inside out. So these are not things that we value or we just speak or we practice with our physical actions. This is, like, to our core who we are. And it can't, these things can't help but seep out of us as we travel on this journey of imitating Jesus. So today, we start with inclusion, all right? Um, have you guys ever gotten sucked into a rivalry all right, everybody's getting ready to. Next weekend, Super Bowl weekend, there are Patriots fans, and there's all the other good people in the world. All right, no, who's rooting? No one. If you're outside of New England, you're not rooting for the Patriots. Amen. So there's a rivalry. We pick sides. All right, I, I've done that. I think we've all participated in that in some way, shape, or form. I grew up playing sports, particularly baseball. So I played through my youth. I played through high school and then college. I met my wife in high school, but she went to one of our rival high schools. She doesn't consider it a rival because we were just itty-bitty Plainfield, and she was big, bad Avon. They were like, oh, Plainfield, we don't. They're not a rival. They're weak. Well, we played them in, in all the sports, you know, football, basketball, baseball. I played baseball. And my junior year, we played them. This is when I first met Carrie. We played them in the regular season, and they smoked us, 9-1. to one. All right, it was a butt-kicking. However, we happened to get a second chance at them, so we made it through into the playoffs, and we actually made it all the way to the sectional championship game, which may not sound like a big deal to you, but 20 years ago, it was a big deal to us to be in the sectional championship. And Avon made it to the championship game, and we destroyed them 12-3. to three. We completely dominated them, and that was, and I have a sectional championship patch on my letter jacket to prove it. Yes, I had my mom send that to me this week for my letter jacket. I would have worn it, but I've gained a little bit of weight since high school. Don't think it would fit. Be fat guy in a little coat. So I still have my letter jacket from this rivalry, and I still bring it up to my wife. She doesn't care. She just laughs, like, oh, give me a break. But I'm like, oh, I remember when we beat Avon 20 years ago. And it still, it still means something. So we, un- we understand rivalry in its silliest sense. Like that, there's a, an us versus them. There's a, a rival, whether it's sports or something uh, else. But one of my favorite philosophers who just recently passed away, his name's Rene Girard. Um, he has a powerful theory that involves rivalry. He believes rivalry is an effect of something he calls mimetic desire. And he contends that mimetic desire is one of the chief characteristics of human beings. We are inclined to desire 
So if you look at the Ten Commandments, all right, we're talking about if, if you've experienced church or God at all, you've probably heard of the Ten Commandments. They're in Exodus 20, the Old Testament. They're fairly popular. You look at all of them, the first nine deal with action, concrete action. The tenth deals with kind of this internal philosophical thing. It talks about covet, uh, do not covet, right? a desire. So it speaks to this, what Rene Girard is talking about. So what Girard concludes is that when we covet or desire what someone else has, the effect of this is rivalry, competition, antagonism, and if you take it to its extreme, eventually violence and war. It just depends on how extreme the rivalry gets. There's an effort to acquire something to the exclusion of others. That's mimetic desire. So... Anytime you see divide or rivalry or hatred or blaming or racism or war, you are seeing the fruit of mimetic desire. You are seeing a group of people who have forgotten that 10th commandment and how wise it is to listen to that. So you're, you're looking at the fruit. Unfortunately, it's very easy for us to want what someone else has. I've experienced that very emotion this week, all right, to want what someone else has and to believe we are in competition for that, so that only one of us can have it. So we, if we listen to mimetic desire, we actually fall into the trap of believing good things are mutually exclusive, that it's one or the other. Not everybody can have it, not I can have it, and them have it. So there's a couple of recent instances that come to mind of how this has played out in our culture. So uh, this week... There was an executive order from our president banning refugees from seven specific countries. And I'm sure there are many reasons being given as to why. But I know one of them is the safety and security of Americans. I've heard that line numerous times being thrown out. And here we have an example of mimetic desire because on one side, we have a desire for the safety and security of Americans. On the other side, we have a desire for the safety and security of immigrants and refugees. And Satan tricks people into thinking that those two things are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. And there's another example of this a week ago. So last week there was a women's march in D.C., sister marches all over. Millions of women desiring equality and respect. And frankly, it was amazing. Amazing grassroots movement uh, that began and just and rose up uh, of a group of people who desire women's empowerment. I've been inspired because... It's, it's a battle I've been fighting for the last four or five years in our church denomination, the empowerment of women. It is something that keeps me awake at night. It is something that uh, angers me when women are treated as less than or you know, don't have the equality and respect of men. So to see this group of women all over the place, crowds like rising up is really inspiring. But in the midst of that, I saw mimetic desire rear its ugly head. When, so there was a, uh, a feminist pro-life group who wanted to sponsor the march, but they were dismissed as sponsors. So I'm not going to get into the politics of that, but let's look at the, the mimetic desire. There are millions of men and women who want women to have equality and empowerment. And there are millions of men and women who desire an ethic of life. And Satan has tricked us into thinking that the two are mutually exclusive, and they're not. So let's take a look at what Jesus says. So Satan tricks us into believing good things are mutually exclusive. 
what Jesus reveals is that our desires can be mutually inclusive. This word inclusion gets thrown out in our culture left and right, and what I see is a watered-down version, a cheap imitation of what Jesus offers with his life. So anytime I sense, you ever been to a party and someone's sitting alone and they're not talking to anybody? That hurts me. I hate seeing that. Anytime I sense or whiff exclusion, I want to call that out. And as Christians, we should live in a countercultural way so that does not happen. Amen. It does when we fail, but we desire for exclusion to not occur. We desire radical inclusion. We believe uh, in, a, in a posture and in a philosophy of abundance that there's more than enough for everyone and that everybody is included in that. So let's take a look at a couple examples of this in Scripture, the power of Christ-like inclusion. So in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 8, if you want to turn there, I should have told you this already, but you want to turn to your, your Bibles, I'm going to read it out loud. Matthew chapter 10. I don't have a page number. I'm so irresponsible. 681. Hey, all right. Zach, so responsible. Thanks, man. Bailed me out. Page 681. I'm going to read verses one through, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, there was Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12... Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not, go, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That is a pretty significant message to deliver. He's trusting them with, a, with radical good news. Like things are changing. Now, I don't want to focus on the mission. I want to focus on the men. All right, on the 12 disciples that he called. So Matthew lists the names of the 12, and he sends them out on a mission, this fairly significant task. Now, if you really know the context of these men, there would be no other reason that they would be together. So let's pick out a few. So let's look at Matthew, the tax collector. Let's look at the fishermen, who are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. And then there was Simon the zealot. So let's look at this group of disciples and how different they are. So Matthew, the tax collector, was a Jew, a Jew who worked for Rome. Uh, people would have, Jews would have hated him. They would have labeled him as a sellout, a traitor to work for the Roman Empire. Then you've got Peter, Andrew, James, and John. These are what some people have called the B team. These are guys that did not fall into any of the popular um, respected religious movements of the time. There were the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were the Essenes, and there were the Zealots. All right? And they didn't, they didn't make the cut with any of those groups. And so they just kind of went about their trade. Like, we're just going to take care of ourselves. And then there was Simon the Zealot, who was armed and was part of a political group called the Zealots, who, were, who sprung out of this uh, group of people called the Maccabeans, who wanted to violently rebel against the Roman Empire. These were political assassins. These were guys that wanted to uh, attack violently and, and solve their problems violently against the Roman Empire. All these guys hung out together. So Matthew would have looked at the fishermen as someone to take advantage of, as someone to rip off, because that's what he did. And he would have been terrified of Simon. Like, if Simon finds out I work for the Roman Empire, he might kill me. Like, that kind of a thing. Then the fishermen 
uh, they would have hated Matthew. This is the guy that comes to rip us off and take our money. We're already having a hard time of it. And here he comes to make it harder. And, and they would have looked at Simon the Zealot as probably nuts. Like, dude, you're taking it way too far. There is no way you're going to be able to conquer the Roman Empire and be part of that group. You're crazy. And then Simon the Zealot would have looked at Matthew, and if he would have found out he was a Roman tax collector, he would have tried to figure out a way, how can I kill this man? Because that's what I do. And he would have looked at the fisherman and it's probably like, you're wasting your impact. You could be doing so much more. And instead, all you do is fish and take care of your family. What about standing up to the empire? These guys would not have gotten along. They would have never hung out in any social situation. In fact, if they had, it wouldn't have gone well. So what could have possibly caused them to come together? And the only answer is the radical inclusion of Jesus Christ. Because when he invites you onto the journey, your agenda changes, your politics change, your relationships change, and your life changes. It's unexplainable. It just happens. But we see it happen here in Matthew 10 and then all throughout the New Testament. But that's inspiring. All right, this is who we want to be like individually and communally as a church. We want to be like Christ. When people encounter us, it brings together such a radically diverse group of people that there's no explanation other than the power of Christ-like inclusion. There's a lot of beauty in that. And so there's another example of this I want to point out in Acts chapter 8, verses uh, 26 through 38. So Acts is this book about, uh, this is after Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he's given the church the, the gift of his Holy Spirit. So if you look at Acts, this is kind of the effect of Jesus' life. This is how people responded to his teachings and his actions and his words. Like, okay, he's like, you got it now. Now go and do what I did. And this is what it looked like. So I'm going to read the story about Philip, a Christian man who was sent out. And uh, I'm going to read that section. So now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet's Old Testament book. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. The spirit is the Holy Spirit. Then Philip ran to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What could stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, in order to understand the significance and radical inclusion of the story, you need to understand a little bit of Jewish history. So the Jew, to the Jews, the temple was where God resided. If you wanted to encounter God, that's where you found him. And the temple was surrounded with with barriers and rules and different compartments within the temple that only certain people could get into based on those rules and those barriers. It was very exclusive. And now the temple has, you know, God has left the building, so to speak. The temple is no longer where God resides. It is everywhere. And it is available 
to anyone. So what we see here with the Holy Spirit is now radical inclusion where the temple had been exclusive. So when the eunuch asks, what can the stand in the way of me being baptized? He knows Jewish law. He knows Jewish reputation. He's a eunuch. He's been maimed. He would not have been allowed in the temple. He would not have been allowed to encounter God. And he's saying, wait, like, aren't there rules to prevent me from doing this? And Philip's saying, no, there's not. Let's do this. All the barriers are gone. You are now included in this journey. Jesus Christ has cornered the market on inclusion. I'm always, like I said, leery of anybody who uses that word because I'm going to look at them really with a lot of, uh, with a discriminating eye. Are they real? Is this real inclusion? Or is this just that flashy, you know, surface level, feels good, sounds good inclusion, but when you get beneath the surface, no, that's not the Christ-like inclusion that I want to know because there's nothing else in the world like it. It overwhelms and it destroys relational barriers. So the dusty cultural cloud that kicks up around us, Restore Church, as we individually and communally follow Jesus, is one of inclusion. It's going to sweep people into it, into relationship with us, maybe into relationship with Christ. And I hope we and the people that encounter us find the beauty in having a common bond that is bigger than our own affinity, our own agenda, our own politics, or our own felt needs. My gosh, does the world need that right now? We need to forget our own self-interest and, and put others first. Again, these words were spoken by Christ. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To put others first. So we have a theology of inclusion. Now what does a methodology of inclusion look like? All right, That's the theory, the philosophy. If that attracts you, if you're like, okay, I'm, I'm a little curious. What does that look like now if we actually live that out? Um, I would love to subscribe a unique and perfect plan for each one of you, but I don't know you because I'm not God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. So these are kind of surface-level suggestions, and what you've got to do individually is really personalize this or maybe share some ideas with someone that you do trust who does know how you're wired, who does know where you're strong and where you're weak, and maybe it'll get a little bit bit more practical. But here's where we start with Christ-like inclusion. We start at the cross. That's it. That's our, uh, that's like, have you ever seen the Matrix, the red pill, the blue pill? That's the red pill, isn't it? Isn't the red pill the good one where Neo takes it? I don't know. I'm obviously not reading my notes here. Um, it's, it is the, uh, I'm trying to think of a simile or a metaphor. It's good. All right, it's the method of inclusion because what Jesus does is he dies on the cross for us. Now, there are lots of different reasons for him dying on the cross. One of them was to show us how to include people, how to draw people in. So the first example, the first thing you can do practically is to be willing to lay your life down. Progressively lose interest in yourself as you gain interest in others. That is the example of the cross. There's nothing else in the world like it, and there's no other religion that sells it. It is completely unique to, to Christ and what he did on the cross. And it is the key for inclusion to lose your life, to lay it down, to lose self-interest, because you will naturally gain interest in other people as you do that. So something I've added to my daily rhythm that I feel like I need to do, is, uh, and it's a work in progress, is I want to bless three people every day. So I'm going to practice this discipline every day of, of pausing and stopping and actively listening to the Spirit, saying, who needs to hear 
from me or who needs to hear from you through me. Maybe a word, a card, a lunch, a coffee, a phone call, a meeting. How can I bless three people every day? And that's the discipline I want to exercise in 2017. So far, I'm like, I'm doing like one and a half every day. Like in every other day, it's, it's tough to start that new rhythm. But I've noticed God working through that. When I lose interest in myself, even if it's only for 30 minutes, and I gain an interest in someone else for those 30 minutes, something special happens when we do that. So what does it look like for you to gain a growing interest in others, specifically others who aren't like you? All right, think about that and how that practically plays out in your life. So inclusion uh, increases as we're willing to die to ourselves. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have to die to your own sin. All right, that's kind of a a dirty word to talk about sin, but it's, it's just there. And this is where postmodernism is missing out. All right? it, 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 what feels good to you could very easily be causing harm to others, could actually cause exclusion. That's why inclusion in its purest form is only possible with Jesus because you, a perfect Christ-like inclusion only happens when there's an individual or a group of people who are willing to die to their own sin, to let God restore them and refine them and purify them. We're all on that journey of what that looks like. Because we don't get to define what's good and bad. That never goes well for humanity. It, it just doesn't. It's good to have someone like Christ who does define that for us. So we have to remember that sin not only harms ourselves, it causes great harm to other people. Sin causes exclusion. So when you see exclusion, you are seeing the fruit of other people's sin and their lack of ability or desire to repent of it, to go in another direction. So what sin do you need to repent of? And it doesn't matter what, it, it could be the most secret, internal area of brokenness, but I'm telling you, it plays out in, in the real world, all right? Because out of the heart is what springs action. It plays out no matter how much, how under control you think you have it. It will play out, and it will cause the exclusion of others. So what sin do you need to repent of? When you think of the word repent, think of 180. I I was going this way, doing this thing, and now I'm going to do a complete shift, and I'm going to pursue Christ. So what do you need to shift away from in regards to sin and towards Christ? Again, that's a personal thing that I don't know. I know what mine are and what I struggle with and what repentance needs to continually occur, but it's, it's an individual thing that we need to think about. So we want to practice communal inclusion, too. And we have one thing, one very simple way we try to do that is we do this lunch about every three months called Roots of Restore. We talk about who we are as a church. Uh, it's, it's, our, it's basically our hope for how you can hear about who we are, how you can get connected to community, how you can serve with us and join the journey of pursuing Jesus with us as a community. And we're going to have that on February 26th, uh, which is, I think, four Sunday, five Sundays from now. Uh, we'll have more details coming up, but it's, um, if you're interested in Restore Church, curious about what it would look like to join on the journey with us, or if you just want free lunch, come join us, sorry, because we're free lunch. It'll be from noon to two on February 26th. If you want more info, you can write that on your connection card. But that's just one way of communal inclusion, but we have to do better at that. And we have some exciting announcements coming up in February that I think are taking a step that are going to like, increase the cloud of inclusion in our church. And I think, it's, I think there's going to be good, good things. So I hope you'll join us over the coming weeks to hear about that. So we're going to close with this song. 
Um, it's called Our God is Love. And there's a lyric in this song we're going to close with that I really love. It, it says, all creation now is one. So thanks to Jesus Christ and his example of inclusion, we have that hope of divides shrinking, of exclusion ending, and of humanity becoming one again. And man, right now, look at our climate right now, like the spiritual, emotional, political climate. It is rough. All right, it's like a blizzard or tornado. It is, there are lots of waves going on, and we have an opportunity, if we follow Jesus, to shrink those gaps relationally and for the divides to, 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 to disappear. And we think, we, we think Jesus is the best way of doing that, of practicing his radical Christ-like inclusion. So let's pray, and then we're, we'll sing together.